with me to the 25th chapter of Genesis. Genesis 25. And as you turn there, let me just ask this question. How many of you regularly read obituaries? Anyone? Okay. Just as I expected, a few, but not very many. It seems to me that in this present age, there are likely only two kinds of people who read obituaries. This is not an insult. There are those who just like to see what's going on, and they find the final summaries of people's lives to be interesting and instructive. And then there are also those who are looking for names they know, or who are expecting a name that they know, and they want to read the story, the summary of somebody that they know. Perhaps it's a combination of those two things. But then for everyone else, it is an easy thing to just pass over that portion of the news, seeing no immediate interest or value to them. I think the same thing is often true in certain passages of Scripture, much like the one that is before us today. Our text is going to be Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. And in these verses, there is no attention-grabbing action. There is, this is not one of those exciting stories with a suspenseful crisis and a heroic victory. This passage is a simple passage containing a simple closeout to the life of Abraham and a simple obituary in his honor. And so it may be easy to skim over this passage to view it as an insignificant footnote to the story of God's plan and throughout Scripture. Maybe it would even be tempting to skip it altogether. But we know Abraham. We have studied his life since chapter 12, which for us began on October 10th, 2021. So we've been studying Abraham's life for almost a year now. We have related to him by watching his journey of faith and learning from his example. Indeed, we have discovered that Abraham is a spiritual relative of ours, a spiritual forefather, and a key hero of Christian history. And so while we might recognize that just as a spiritual, or, or just as an obituary, it might seem meaningless to the, the broader world around us to read this summary of his life, but we know Abraham. And these are meaningful verses to us. Verses 1 through 18 here give us a picture of the dying grace that God gives to his people. These verses help us to learn how to think when we go through similar times of grief and loss. These verses reveal to us what gives God's people hope in such trying times. You see, most people are terrified at the thought of death. They don't like to talk about it. They desperately try to avoid the subject entirely. 
But for those of us who hope in God, it does us well to remember death. Scripture doesn't hide the reality of death. In fact, it brings it front and center many times. Because in remembering death, we have the opportunity to remember the God who gives us hope and peace and eternal life. And to find comfort and joy in the ordinary movements of human life. Because there we find comfort and joy in the constant splatters of divine grace that paint a glorious picture of God's greatness on the canvas of every one of our lives. And when we consider death, and when we take time to look at the lives of those who have passed away, those splatters come into clearer focus, and we see the picture that they form. I want us to look at these verses now and see what instruction and encouragement we might find from this closing summary and obituary of Abraham's life. So please follow along as I read verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and, Le and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Aldea. All these were the children of Keturah, and there will be a, a quiz on their pronunciation when the service is over. Verse 5. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with, his, with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to him. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Nabdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedemah. That'll be quiz number two. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. 
many details there, many names that don't mean a whole lot to us in the modern age, but this is one of those passages that contains a, an unexpected jewel of instruction, much like a funeral would. Many funerals, most funerals, involve, involve at least three basic elements. For one thing, funerals involve a remembrance of the life of the one who has passed away, often some sort of summary or reflection on key events and what happened and what marked the life of that individual. Funerals, at least Christian funerals, often will also involve a consideration of death and where that person might be today. And then funerals often also involve a reflection about life here and now for those who remain. And what ought to be our responsibility or our thoughts as we move ahead. For Christians, those who have eternal hope and eternal uh, eternal joy in a good and gracious God, this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us comfort. This is what gives us peace in the Lord in the face of death. When we remember the life of a godly saint, that life is a testimony to us. It is a lesson to us about the faithfulness of a good God. That is why Christians, though we weep when we've lost a loved one, we weep in an entirely different way than the rest of the world. When we consider the life of a godly saint, when we consider the reality of death, we also remember the reality of life after death. And when we consider those who still remain, we remember that God's work still carries on and that he will be faithful to us, just as he was to them. I want us to approach this text this morning in this way. And I want us to let Abraham's eulogy in this obituary point us once again to the character of God, to the life that we have in God, and to the promise of God at work. Because as the people of God, this is the knowledge we must have. This is the conviction we must hold. This is the worldview we must embrace as we strive to live by faith in this present world. So let's consider eternal lessons from the life and the death of our forefather Abraham. And let's begin with a remembrance of God's faithfulness. It's the first thing I want us to see, a remembrance of God's faithfulness as displayed in the life of Abraham and in his final days. We've already seen this all the way back in chapter 24. I say all the way because 24 was a long chapter. And if you look back at verse 1, we've already seen this testimony. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, so a full life by God's grace. And then the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And now this testimony continues into chapter 25. And we see God's faithfulness there in verses 1 through 6, and then also down in verses 12 through 16 in a particular way. 
These two parts of this chapter, these two sets of verses give us a simple list. Two simple genealogies that may seem insignificant to us at first glance. But remember, the genealogies of Scripture were very important to the people of Israel, and they are very instructive when we consider what God is doing in the bigger picture. And there's a reason that these two lists of descendants serve as bookends to the obituary of Abraham. Verse 1 begins by telling us Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now that little bit of information has caused some people a little bit of trouble. I don't think it's so much the fact that Abraham took another wife. That's a common thing to do even in today's age. That once a spouse dies, the remaining spouse will remarry. But what I think has caused some people trouble is to consider that in this verse, she's referred to as a wife, but down in verse 6, it appears she's referred to as a concubine, which is not the same thing as a wife. And that has led some to conclude that Keturah was someone like Hagar, someone who was not his wife, but someone who has raised up children to Abraham through a relationship that we would consider illegitimate. Some have even concluded that the children listed in verse 2 were born while Sarah was still alive, possibly even before Isaac was born. That's how they figure out how a man like Abraham, as old as he was, could still have children. If that is the case, we need to remember Abraham didn't have the written law of God yet, and these were typical cultural customs in that day that maybe he was following. I'm not saying that makes it right. I'm just saying that's the way it could have been. But, Others seem to think that the more natural reading of this passage is that after Sarah passed away, Abraham remarried, and that all the children who were born, who are listed here, were born sometime during that 35 to 38 year gap between Sarah's death and Abraham's death. And you say that means that Abraham was 140 years old at least when these children were born. How could that be? And my answer is, he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. God can do whatever he wants to do. I think that's the more natural reading of this passage. I think that's more consistent with the character that we see of Abraham in his later years. And what that would mean is that the reference to concubines in verse 6 is just appearing to set Sarah, the covenant mother, and Isaac, the covenant son, apart from everyone else. You don't have to agree with me on that. That's fine. And even if you don't, the point is this. Look at all the descendants. I mean, just think about that. Abraham, who apparently until he was 100 years old, or at least 75, because Ishmael was born before that, had no children. Now look at what he has listed in his obituary. And this is from the one that Romans 4 tells us was as good as dead. 
because of his old age. And here in verses 1 through 4, we have a list of six more children and of seven grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. And those are just the ones that are recorded. I'm pretty sure there were more. And then, down in verses 12 through 15, we have another list of 12 more grandchildren through Ishmael. What this means is that God has fully kept and is continuing to keep His promise to Abraham. You see, back in chapter 17, verses 4 through 6, God had promised to make Abraham a father of many nations. And of course, we understand that the ultimate fulfillment of that is that there would be many descendants from Isaac through the nation of Israel that would culminate in the arrival of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But we're seeing here that there is even an immediate fulfillment, a local realization of God's promise as Abraham sends these sons out from himself, they form nations in their own right. God had promised that Abraham would become the father of nations. And now here, in a sense, even before his dying breath, God has been fully faithful to that promise. In verses 5 and 6, Abraham acknowledges all of that while at the same time maintaining and preserving the distinctiveness of the land and of the covenant son, Isaac. So he gives generously to all of these other sons, and he sends them away. And I don't, I don't think that was a harsh sending away, though they may not have cared for it at the time, but he is sending them away full to a land that will be their own, where they will raise up their own nations. But then he focuses in on Isaac, and Isaac is the one who inherits everything, including the land. And in all of this, the final comment on Abraham's life is that God has been faithful, and he has richly blessed him, that God has provided at every step, and he has sustained him, and he has sanctified him, and he has led him safely home. That is the story of Abraham's life. We have seen it over and over and over and over again since chapter 12. And that is the final summary we find here in chapter 25. But you know, this isn't just the story of Abraham's life. This is the story of every life that belongs to God. This is the story of every saint who follows him. Abraham's just a picture of this. As one preacher put it, the chronicle of a believer's life is the chronicle of God's faithfulness to his promises. Above all things, in the midst of every accomplishment and every achievement and every possession and every aspect of an earthly legacy, the chronicle of a believer's life is a story of God's faithfulness. In Psalm 139, the psalmist 
puts it so beautifully, covering the faithfulness of God in the lives of his people when he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from, a, from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. Are, uh, you search out my path and my lying down are, and are acquainted with all my ways. You know my thoughts. You hedge me in behind and before. Verse 16, your eyes saw my un, unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Everywhere we go, in anything that we do, and in whatever we face in this life, God is there. And God is faithful, and He holds us fast, and He faithfully works out His good plan for us and for His eternal glory and praise. That is the testimony of every sanctified life, of every life, of every saint who belongs to the Lord. Now one thing we need to remember, something that overshadows all of this, something that overshadows every promise that God makes to Abraham, we need to understand the promise of God to Abraham is not merely about children in that age, at that moment, in that place. It is not about children primarily, but it is about the one child. The seed of the woman that had been promised to Eve back in Genesis chapter 3. That is the story that Scripture tells us. That is the promise that God is fulfilling through every promise and every movement He gives to Abraham. This is the promise of a Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come to bring salvation to all the nations, to all who believe in Him. And this is where the promises of God to all His people come into view. It's not just about Abraham having lots of kids. It's about God using those children to further His salvation plan throughout all history. This is why Abraham is a spiritual forefather to us today. God's promises to His people, to Abraham then and to us today, are not merely empty temporal promises that apply to this life only. And if you think that's all God's promises are to you, then you are going to be disillusioned. Because sometimes the things we face in this world are not very promising. The promises that God has given to His people are much grander and greater and sweeter than that. Think about the promises that God has given to all Christians in Scripture. To all who will ever believe, whether they live here or across the ocean. Whatever their experiences are, whether they die a full and happy life or whether they die at the stake whether they are rich or poor, whether they are old or young, wherever they are, what are the promises, the great and precious promises that God has given to His people that are yours in Christ today? Well, He's promised that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you may not feel at the moment like that's anything significant, but I assure you on that day when that book is opened, 
it will be the only thing you're thinking about. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Another promise is that we will not face condemnation for our sin, but that we have been given eternal life and peace with God. That whatever we face, we are heirs with Him. And that's another promise, that we will be raised from the dead, that we will be heirs with Christ in eternal life, that we are joint heirs with the saints in light, that we will have an eternal inheritance in Christ. All of these things are rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are accomplished for all of the people of God, and they are the basis for godly living and hopeful living right here and right now. That is the testimony, not just of a faithful life, but a faithful God in the lives of His people. And it's all rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is always faithful, who will never leave you nor forsake you, whose every promise is yes and amen and as good as done. And the call of God on your life today, every one of us, is that at every step, in every moment, we would look to Him, that we would trust in Him, that we would rest in Him and seek our joy in Him alone, and that we would cry out to Him and that we would follow Him because He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And in this, one preacher once again pleads with us, don't lose God in the clutter of less significant things in your life. Make His promises your prayers during your pilgrimage on earth. Make His deeds the theme of your life story. That is the godly person's legacy. And what the death of a faithful, godly saint teaches us is that God is faithful, and He is trustworthy, and He is worth our utmost devotion. You ever drive through a cemetery, a look at the headstones? You find out what marks a person's life. You find out very quickly who lived and died for motorcycles, for classic cars, for fishing, for hunting, for... I'm a guy. Those are the kinds of hobbies I think of. Ladies, whatever it is for you, maybe it's the same, maybe it's something else. You find out what meant a lot to people. What a headstone it would be for you if for generations to follow, people walked by your grave and saw this testimony from your life. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And God is worth your utmost devotion. Now, moving on from a review and a remembrance of God's faithfulness through the, through the lives of His people, I want us next to consider the assurance of eternal life. Remembrance of God's faithfulness, assurance of eternal life. And this is, again, not just for Abraham, but for all of God's people. In verse 7, we learned that Abraham lived a full life for that time, 175 years. We can't fathom that. 
It's a long time to live. But that was a full life for him. In verses 9 and 10, we see Isaac and Ishmael lay his body to rest in the cave that he purchased for Sarah's body. So there they are, laid to rest together. I don't want to read into this situation too much of a reconciliation between Isaac and Ishmael. Maybe there was. I, I hold out hope. I'll mention this later that maybe Ishmael was a believer in Abraham's God, but I don't know. But here they are together honoring the death of their father. But I want us to zoom in on verse 8, and I want us to see how the text describes Abraham's death. And I want us to notice specifically that phrase, that he was gathered to his people. What does that mean? It's a common phrase in the Old Testament. It's used not just of Abraham, but also in verse 17, it's used for Ishmael. It's used for Isaac in chapter 35. It's used for Jacob in chapter 49. It's used of Aaron in Numbers chapter 20. And it's used of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And I think it's important for us to notice that this phrase apparently is not just a euphemism for death. We don't like to say this person died, so we say he passed away. We might tend to think, well, their version of it was he was gathered to his people. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's more than that. It's used separately in verse 8 from his death. It mentions that he died and that he was gathered to his people. So it seems that they're not the same thing. I also don't think it's referring to his burial or even burial in a family tomb where the family members who've already died already are because that's mentioned in verse 9. So it doesn't appear to be the same thing. It appears to be mentioned in addition to that. So what is it? Well, I believe that very generally speaking, it is an indication of their belief in an afterlife. That there is an awareness that there is something more to come after this life is over. To be honest with you, I don't like the word afterlife. Sounds like we're talking about ghosts and, you know, zombies and stuff like that. And I don't like that. It's a little creepy. I prefer just to call it the next life. The next life. It's not the life of the undead. It's the next life that we come to. And that is an awareness. That is a sense. Hear me now. This awareness of the next life is a sense that belongs to all people. Even those who deny it. Even those who deny God. After all, Solomon is the one who writes in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity into man's heart. So that even those who do not believe in God still have an innate sense that this life is not all there is even if they don't acknowledge it. That's why the world is so scared of it. That's why the world creates cartoons about it and fictional stories that redefine it to make it a little bit more palatable. The world doesn't want to acknowledge it. But for the people of God, for those who believe in Him, for those who belong to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, this thought of the next life is not a fearful and troubling thing. It is a source of great comfort and hope. 
in Exodus chapter 3, God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's significant about that? Well, Moses would have understood that they're living somewhere at that present moment, even though they had died, but even more so in the New Testament in Matthew 22, verse 32, Jesus picks up on this language and he declares on that basis that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It is a confident and comforting belief in the next life that belongs not just to the people of the New Testament, but this thought is prevalent and pervasive and prominent among the people of God, even in the Old Testament. Long before the scriptural teaching came along in the New Testament to clarify it and expand on it. Even Job, who probably lived around the time of Abraham, lived with an expectation that after he had died, that he would in his flesh see God. David asserts in Psalm 17, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And of course, we remember in Psalm 23, 6, that he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Daniel the prophet says in Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And of all of the Old Testament saints, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16 summarizes their mindset. That these all died in faith, not having received all the things promised, but having greeted them, seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. The point is this, from the beginning, mankind has understood that death is not the end. It is not annihilation, that man will live somewhere forever beyond this life. Uh, for the unbeliever, that is a fearful thought. And it, and it is a conversation to be avoided as much as possible because they're scared to death of it. But for the believer, it is a welcome and comforting thought. And it is spoken of here in terms of a sweet and happy reunion. Sometimes we get a little critical of saints who say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I want to see such and such a loved one who has passed away already. And we say, no, 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 the focus of heaven is going to be Jesus. And yes, that is true. But in His grace, we will be gathered to our people as well. And we will see not only Jesus, but we will see the loved ones we long to see again. And we are allowed to look forward to that day, as some of you I know do. It is a welcome thought. It is spoken of in terms of being gathered to our people. What people? The people of Ur of the Chaldeans from where Abraham came? No. It is the people of God from every age, the people to whom we all belong and with whom we will all be united before the throne of God forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why, by the way, beloved, we must love the church. And I don't mean just the concept of the church. 
and the organization of the church. I mean the people of the church. And we must love them intensely. Our closest relationships and friendships should be within the church. Our greatest earthly loyalty should be to our church family. We should fiercely protect one another. And we should be inseparable. We should be indivisible. Why? Because these are our people. And we ought to look at them and say so. And we will serve the Lord together forever. This is our eternal identity in Christ. Both in this world and the next. Now the New Testament explains this idea of the next life a little bit further. By explaining to us, first of all, that the root cause of all death is what? Sin. Sin. And its devastating effects on all creation. Romans 6.23 makes that crystal clear. That for all mankind, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In order to deal with death, we have to deal with sin. But we simply can't do that on our own, can we? Why? Because we are the sinners. We are already guilty. We cannot deal with sin on our own. Therefore, we cannot deal with death on our own. We, in our sin, could never repay the justice of a holy God. But there is one who has. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, who did live a perfect life on this earth, completely without sin, and yet he still died a sinner's death in our place on the cross to become a curse for us, so that he might bear in himself the judgment that we deserve. And then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and over death. so that He might bestow on us His perfect righteousness if we believe in Him. And so it is in Him, and in Him alone, by faith, that we find the solution to man's greatest problem and man's greatest nemesis, sin and death. And it is because He is risen that we also shall be risen to be with Him and to be like Him forever. You see, death is not the end of the story for any of us. For those who do not confess and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in humble and contrite faith, death is the doorway into eternal damnation. But for those who do believe, those who do belong to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, death is the doorway into life and joy everlasting. This is the solid hope that accompanies every believer in this life and gives us comfort and strength in the midst of our greatest sorrows. My friends, do you know that assurance today? Though death is a grievous thing, even for believers, and we still groan under its grief, it is still a welcome thought because we know what's on the other side. And even when a godly saint has passed on from us, it's hard for us to mourn too much because we know where they are. 
Friends, do you know that assurance of eternal life? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is our prayer that you do. Now that brings us to a third point of comfort and instruction that we find in Abraham's eulogy. We've seen the remembrance of God's faithfulness and the assurance of eternal life. Now let's see the continuance of God's work. The continuance of God's work. Verse 11 begins with this. After the death of Abraham, which by the way, if you want to just look at your Bible, this is the part that covers God's promises and Abraham's life. This is the part that covers everything that came after the death of Abraham. So you know the story is going to keep going, right? And that's the idea. This phrase, after the death of Abraham, is a significant transitional phrase in the Old Testament. It signals a new stage in life after the passing of a significant person. And it, it, it acknowledges all of the uncertainties and fears that might come with such a transition. Oh no, Abraham the patriarch is gone. Now what? How will we ever continue now that this great hero of the faith is gone? What's next? Is it all over? How are things going to be now that this voice has been silenced? Well, the rest of verse 11 immediately assures us that everything is going to be just fine. The first thing Scripture says after the death of Abraham is that God blessed Isaac, his son. And you just think, next man up. And that's not to minimize the seriousness or the grief of the death of that individual, but to recognize that the story moves on. God blessed his son Isaac. And then we see significantly that Isaac settles down at a place called Beer Lahairoi. You know what that means? Hagar named it that, by the way, remember? And it means the well of the God who sees or who looks after me. Abraham's gone, but God hasn't gone anywhere. Time marches on. The story continues without missing a beat. And as it turns out, we find out what we have had to learn over and over and over again throughout history, that God's sovereign plan and gracious promises do not depend on men at all. Not even the great men of renown. Not even Abraham. There are certain men who have been significant heroes in my life. Significant voices in our generation, for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Some of them men whom I haven't even met before, who have passed on, and I feel a sense of loss and grief. What is this world going to do without that voice here? You know what? God's plan goes on just fine. One preacher put it this way, God's servants die, but God's promise and plan continue. That not even Abraham was indispensable, because it is God who carries the story forward. 
And sometimes he uses significant people to do that. And they should be honored that way. Significant people like Abraham and Jacob. But then sometimes he uses less significant, less noteworthy people like Isaac. You say, wait, Isaac was one of the patriarchs. Yeah, but how much of his life is recorded here? Not a whole lot. And it's not all positive stuff that we see. We find out Isaac was a pretty ordinary guy. And sometimes God uses that too. And God even blesses Ishmael for his purposes in verses 17 and 18. And Ishmael wasn't even a part of the covenant. I suspect maybe he was a believer in Abraham's God because Ishmael too was gathered to his people, but I don't, I don't know. But either way, God blessed him too. The point of it here is this, that with the passing of such a giant of the faith, it is important for God's people to remember that God's promises and God's plan are not dependent on any of those men any more than it is dependent on you and me. God calls us to serve Him. God invites and allows us to serve Him for His good purposes, and it's a joy to do so. But His plans don't depend on us. The death of this great servant of God does not mean the end of God's plan or His work. God's plan continues, not dependent on the heroes of the past or of the present, but resting entirely on His sovereign power and constant faithfulness. Sometimes I think we might rest a little too hard on men more than the Lord. My spiritual life depends on what such and such a preacher says or what such and such an author has written. Or I have to listen to this or go through that in order to have my spiritual life. And the fact is God's plan for your life does not depend on any of those people. Though he may have used them greatly in your life. One preacher put it this way, God is not frustrated by the unavailability of any of his servants. And furthermore, God doesn't need first stringers. He can do with an Isaac. He does not depend on a varsity squad or on a pantheon of elite evangelical leaders because they're just doing His work. He's the one carrying it on. And so God says in Isaiah 45, 23, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. It is all of Him. It is all by Him. It is all for Him. And by His grace and by His sovereign call, we all have a place. And so as the faithful men and women of old have been a blessing to us on their passing, we do not despair, but we just pick up the mantle and carry on so that God will use us in someone else's life as He has used them in ours but realizing all along it is God's work that we carry on. And so Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8 encourages us, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It is good to appreciate and to imitate our spiritual heroes. And God knows we need more spiritual heroes. 
take the posters of athletes off of your walls. Put up better heroes in your life. LeBron James has nothing to offer you, my friends. <laughs> Tiger Woods has nothing to offer you or whoever your hero is in this world. Look to Christian heroes. Look to the great men and women of the faith and honor them. We need that today. But remember this. It is Jesus alone who changes not. It is Jesus alone who gets the glory and who is carrying on his glorious work to its completion. We are to keep our eyes fixed on him above all else. We are to rest our eternal hopes in him. We are to embrace his call to follow and serve by faith all the days of our lives. And we are to eagerly look forward to that great, that great day when we see Him face to face. And we live with Him forever. And we are to live today with the confident assurance that He is with us to the end of the age. And that He will complete the good work that He has begun in us. Remembering God's faithfulness the assurance of eternal life, the continuance of God's grand work and His call in the lives of those who remain. This is the legacy of every spiritual hero and of every ordinary faithful saint in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the ultimate, the final message of Abraham's life and death. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.